You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. The Bible reading comes from Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. The Servant of the Lord. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God, the Lord, says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place. And new things I declare, before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Okay, I'm going to be with you again tonight as we keep on ploughing through Isaiah. We're just looking at, um, I'm moving around a bit, but our main text tonight is that one, Isaiah 42. So it'd be helpful to have it open in front of you. Um, And tonight, uh, we're asking this question, how will the servant save? How will the servant save? Part of a bigger series, of course, a bigger question, how do we get to Zion? Uh, And why does that question, the bigger overarching question, how do we get to Zion or how can we get to Zion, why does that matter? Well, it's because it's what everyone uh, wants in their heart of hearts to get to Zion. Um, I don't know if you uh, have subscribed to Netflix or have access to it, but there's a documentary I watched just a few weeks ago, which I really loved which was, I'm not sure what it was called, but it was on um, uh, the, the 1999 version of Woodstock. I don't know if anyone's seen that documentary. Anyone seen that? Okay, good. I've got to work on my connection with the crowd. But yeah, so it's really interesting. The first uh, Woodstock in 69, of course, was a big love fest. It's a very famous art and music festival. And the people, when they put it on and, and created that festival, um, it was all about the spirit of the age. You know, it was after the first half of the century uh, when there was all this war, one and uh, first and second world war. Um, it was after the sexual revolution and um, there was a spirit of change in the air and, a, and a, a deep sense of optimism about where we could go from here as human beings. And so it was a Fantastic success, which has been the catalyst for many more festivals and been a bit of a blueprint on on how to do it. And it was just a cultural shift as well. Well, 30 years later, the person who helped uh, 
put on the first festival, put on the 30-year anniversary Woodstock in 1999, and it was an absolute schmozzle. It was, uh, it was terrible. Um, there was sexual assault. Uh, there was a sewage problem. Um, the, uh, all the prices were highly inflated and you're kind of locked in. So if you wanted to get, say, uh, a drink of water, they confiscated your own water as you walked into the festival and you had to buy it from the stands and it was hugely inflated. The temperatures were soaring. Um, yeah, there, it was just an absolute train wreck. It ended up with uh, whole sections of the festival site being burnt down and towers being pushed over and destroyed. Basically, it was chaos and a riot. And that guy who helped um, put on the very first festival was in denial. He was in denial. Burying his head in the sands, uh, sand, trying to spin the press releases all the time to make it seem like it was a really a great success. And why did it all go horribly wrong? Well, because the second time round, he was driven by money. He wanted to make a profit. And so it completely messed with the spirit of the festival um, and, and it completely destroyed um, that heritage from the first one and destroyed its name as well. And I think that's a great kind of analogy for the human condition, the human problem. See, in many ways, the second festival was really advanced. You know, it progressed from the first one. The technology was much greater, the amplification, the set design, uh, you know, the way that they broadcast it. All of that kind of stuff, of course, was much better than the first festival but it was corrupted by greed. And as human beings, we have a way, don't we? We have a way of destroying Eden. That's a specialty of ours. That's what Adam and Eve did. They destroyed Eden and we follow suit. So whilst there's sort of, um, you know, at times progression and at times great optimism and we can do great good, we always have a way, don't we, of sort of coming back to this base problem that we have being corrupted by our own sinful desires. And the reason why Zion matters is because it tells us how to fulfil, if you like, the vision of Woodstock 69. Woodstock 69 was all about love and peace. You know, turning over a new page for humanity. We've learnt so much from the first half of the century. We're never going to go back, right? We're never going to go back. And just 30 years later, one of the co-founders has got this horrible, marred by his own sinful desires festival, which has completely devolved into something that no longer aligns at all with the original spirit of that festival. But that's what we want. We want love and peace and life. And here in Isaiah, that's what Isaiah is mapping out for us. How do we get to the way that creation is meant to be? How do we be under God, the kind of human beings we all long to be? And at Zion, because great King David, the greatest king uh, in the Old Testament, or the most esteemed king in the Old Testament, his city in Jerusalem was built on this Mount Zion. 
And so as they look forward, they look back to great King David and the city. It was actually called the City of David, right? Within Jerusalem on Mount Zion. They go, we long for another David. We long for an even greater David that was talked about in the Bible. The David whose throne would last forever. The David who would never die. The David who would bring peace to the world. We're hanging out for Mount Zion in Jerusalem where he rules and everything is put right. How do we get to Zion? So we've been through a, um, you know, a fair bit of Isaiah. There's so much in there. Uh, I was just saying to Amy today and Dan, um, there is so much happening in the book of Isaiah and we're just doing a flyover. So I recommend that you yourselves just read it and reread it and reread it, read some of the books about it, get your head around it because it really does reward you. But so far, what have we seen? Well, we've seen that Zion will happen through God's people, but the development in Isaiah is it'll happen through the faithful remnant. Talk one. How will we get to Zion? Well, the promises, remember, were given to God's people, but they've proved themselves time and time again to be faithless. So he's saying the faithful remnant in Isaiah will be the means by which blessing comes to the world. That's talk one. Talk two, it'll come through the preaching of God's word, his promises, but in a way that reveals the hardness and the sinfulness of the human heart. Remember talk two? It'll come through the preaching of God's word, but in a way that reveals the hardness and sinfulness of the human heart and therefore our need for someone who can fix that. Talk three, how will we get to Zion? I've gone blank, can't remember. There's no way anyone here is going to be able to help me. And as I'm talking, I hope it comes back. Talk four was, ah, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace. Thank you, Josh. You came, um, you came good. So um, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace, who, but remember, who will bring peace, will bring peace by ruling and exercising judgment and authority of the nations. That was sort of the prize. The Prince of Peace who brings it by a firm rule over the nations. Fourth talk, how will Zion come? How will we get there? Through this universal judgment. That was last week. Universal judgment of all the nations so that Leviathan will be slain once and for all. So that all evil will be taken out of the world. That's a critical part of Zion coming. This week, further development in the book of Isaiah. It says so much, Isaiah, about how Zion will actually happen. This week... How will Zion come? Through the servant of the Lord. And so therefore the question tonight is, how will this servant save? How will this servant bring us to Zion? That's the question before us. And the first thing about, just to say about that is that the servant will save in the spirit. The servant will save in the power. Oh, that's better. By the spirit, by the power of the spirit. Verse one. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So this servant who will bring justice to the nations, the word justice there 
means more than simply like a, a legal rightness. It means a, like the Sabbath, it means rightness to all of creation. This servant will bring this reality where everything is in its place, everything is as it ought to be, and it's because I will put my spirit on him. Critically, first up, who is this servant? Well, I'm glad you asked. There's lots of debate. Some say, well, it's clearly a, pro a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Others say it's Isaiah, the prophet who's written the book. Others, again, say it's Israel, God's people, they're God's servant. I prefer the last option, although it's debatable. And the reason I prefer the last option is because Israel is explicitly called God's servant in the surrounding passages. So in chapter 41, it calls Israel my servant. And sorry, at the end of chapter 42 as well, it's clearly talking about Israel when he references his servant. The complication is, the complication is, right, is that in those surrounding texts of Isaiah 42, the servant is talked about in less than flattering terms. So take this, for instance, Isaiah 41, uh, verse, verse 14. Here he is talking about Israel. He's already called them his servant. And he says, don't be afraid, you worm Jacob, little Israel. Don't fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth, you will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. So he's there saying that they will be used by him as a part of this salvation work, right? His people, the servant, but they're a worm, little Jacob. I'm going to do it through you. Less than flattering, right? And there at the end of 42, uh, chapter 42, verse 18, Hear you deaf, look you blind and see. Who is blind but my servant? And deaf, like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me? Blind like the servant of the Lord. There it's talking about Israel, clearly. And it's less than flattering, right? So if it's talking about Israel as the servant in chapter 42, how can we account for the fact that it's very positive? Here is my servant, whom I uphold. It sounds like a coronation sort of statement. Here is my servant, whom I uphold. I bless him. My chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Well, this is why I make the first point. How will the servant say, by the spirit? I think the difference here is it's by the spirit. The way that God will work through his servant to be this instrument of salvation and of judgment is to make them fit for purpose by the power of his spirit. I'll put my spirit in you and on you that you will faithfully serve me and do what I want. To give a little background here and perhaps a bit, bit of more context to this section of Isaiah as a whole, it's helpful to go back to previous chapters, so Isaiah, I think it's 36 through to 39. And there it tells the story of 
Hezekiah. And the reason why it's helpful to know that is because, of, well, for several reasons. One is that he begins to be the kind of servant God desires, except for one Achilles heel. But also there's a, there's a break, a chronological or an historical, I don't know, like big, a big gap between the, the history that it's covering up to chapter 39 and chapter 40. So up to 39, it kind of tells the story about uh, Jerusalem before they're, they're, they're invaded by Babylon and taken into exile. From chapter 40 onwards of Isaiah, it's talking to people at the end of their exile in Babylon and looking to return. There's a big gap in history between those two chapters. And partly the reason why God's people, Jerusalem, the last bit of God's people standing, right? The reason why Jerusalem finally fell and went into exile to Babylon, so everyone was gone from Israel, all of God's people were taken captive, is because of Hezekiah. But Hezekiah, as a king over God's people, started in a very promising fashion. His father, Ahaz, I'm not sure if you remember him from talk, I think it was one or two, I think it was talk, uh, no, it was talk two. Ahaz, remember? Assyria was going to invade and was threatening to invade Jerusalem. He's the king. That's the last part of the kingdom standing. And remember, Isaiah is saying, you know, take courage, stand up. God's going to protect you. Ask me for a sign. And he totally chickens out. Remember that? And he's faithless and tries to make alliances with other countries to protect himself. And so God promises judgment. Well, that judgment actually comes in Hezekiah's time. And so Assyria does invade Judah, where Jerusalem is. And the only thing left is Jerusalem, the city itself. And so an envoy comes, bear with me, an envoy comes from Assyria to speak to Hezekiah's men in exactly the same place they came and talked to his father Ahaz's men. I just sort of broker a deal. You're either going to surrender and come in under Assyrian rule, or we're going to come in and just, just take Jerusalem, destroy it. And there's a nice little detail here to, talk, to sort of give you a picture of the ferocity. The people who come from Assyria are talking in Hebrew, and the people, who, the, the, the delegates who went from Hezekiah to meet them said, can you please speak in Aramaic? Because all the men on the wall and people around us can hear what you're talking about, and it's not very pleasant. Can you speak in Aramaic? Because we understand Aramaic. They're high up in the kingdom, educated. And they said, no, we're going to keep speaking in Hebrew because those people up there who are listening in, they're the ones who are going to have to be eating their own excrement and drinking their own urine when we come and kick your butt. Like it's a really sort of nasty sort of confrontation. Now, what does Hezekiah do? The king of Ahaz, what does he do? He doesn't ask for a sign. Isaiah doesn't promise him a sign. But immediately he goes to the temple and he seeks the Lord. And he calls for Isaiah and he says, Isaiah, pray for us. And because of that, Jerusalem is protected. He is the faithful servant, the servant God's people need. 
the kind of servant, right, that God might be able to work through to bring his plan of salvation. Remember, we're looking for the faithful servant, the faithful remnant, but everyone just keeps on failing. But here we have one, Hezekiah. Maybe he'll pull through. Maybe he'll be great King David's greatest son. Maybe this will be the turning point. A bunch of other stuff happens. And some time later, quite a long time later, Babylon sends some people to come and say to Hezekiah after he recovers from a sickness, we're so glad you recovered, here are some gifts, yada yada, I don't know what they do, diplomatic stuff. Um, they were probably, probably I, I suspect the people from Babylon were quite impressed that Hezekiah and Jerusalem stood up to Assyria and they didn't finally fall because everyone else was. And it says there that Hezekiah, reading between the lines, it appears he got a bit puffed up and took them over on a tour of his palace and his storehouses. And he's saying, come on now, look what we've got. Look, look at how successful we are. We're actually very powerful. He says nothing about God. He says nothing about the Lord protecting them. He says nothing about the fact, Hezekiah says nothing about the fact that I prayed to my God and he saved us. No glory or honour to God. And so because of that, God says, okay, you're going to go into exile. Hezekiah was the last person standing in the history of God's people. And it seems he fell at the last hurdle. He was so highly esteemed too in the, in the book of 2 Kings that says there was no king like him before or after. You can understand why I can't do in that context, that trying context. So now fast forward, right? So now fast forward to Isaiah 42. And this part of Isaiah is written to people who are now at the end of exile in Babylon. And God is saying to them, I will esteem my servant. But how is this going to work if even Hezekiah falls in my Spirit, by my spirit, this will work out. Thanks, Josh. So you see, it, the spirit is the... Can you hear me now? Oh, Okay, okay, let's just work this out. <laughs> okay, yada, 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 Hezekiah, not such a great guy. Is that better? You with me? You can hear me? Great, thank you for that. Um, yeah, so, um, so where are we? Yeah, the difference is, right... Um, my spirit is on him. So how will the servant save? By the spirit. God's people will bring God's salvation to the world, will draw people back in to Jerusalem, to Zion, where God rules from, and they'll be successful in their mission by the spirit. Secondly, the servant, the servant will save with gentleness. The servant will save with gentleness. Which is surprising and a different, a different thread that starts to develop, right? It's always kind of been there, but now in Isaiah it's being developed. That's meant to complement and work together with all these promises of God's universal judgment is going to come and lay the smack down. Here it says, my servant will come in gentleness. Verse 2 through to verse 4. 
He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. So the servant is going to come and patiently, gently persevere in righteousness, in his teaching to establish justice on the earth. That is everything in harmony, everything fixed up, everything as it ought to be. There's a lady at our church who has been working in China for several years as a missionary. I can't say her name because of security reasons. I'll call her Ellie. Ellie uh, was a part of Focus CU here. So there's an international ministry uh, that runs on a Friday night. That's a part of our ministry. So they do a similar thing that we're doing here on Friday nights. She's a part of that ministry, became a Christian through that ministry, uh, was partly trained by that ministry, and then later on went out uh, and trained to be a missionary. Now she's in China doing her work. She came back on Sunday to her home church, my church, and gave us a bit of an update. There's a lot to say. But one of the things she shared uh, is that it's, it's hard and intimidating doing gospel work there. She said, for instance, she works amongst some high school students who are trying to, they're, they're, they have to work really hard to get to uni there, so they're working hard to get there. She's working with this bunch of high school students and she runs a Bible study. She said, I can't actually remember what year she said, but she said initially when they were doing it, they would get sort of one or two policemen a year would come and knock on their door just to check out what they were doing. Um, because you, you can have churches in China, but it's under the, under the pretty strict control of the state. Um, she said in the, in the last few years when they've been having Bible studies, it's really ramped up to the point where, I can't remember if it was pre-COVID or even during COVID, probably pre-COVID. She said that um, in that year, there were 21 policemen came and knocked on their door and want to inspect the unit. And what they're looking for is evidence of an illegal Bible study group. Um, and so she said that one time they're there and there were a bunch of policemen coming to the door and a couple of the taller guys in the group stood up in the doorway so the policemen couldn't get a clear view in while they quickly hid all the Bibles. And she said her heart was pounding and the police came in to inspect and she noticed a Bible was left on the table, uh, on, the, on the dining table. And she said she was really, her heart was really starting to pound. And then someone else was a part of that group, uh, saw a bit of paper, just quickly slipped, say, four bit of paper over the Bible. <laughs> and the police went throughout the unit looking and they didn't see any Bibles they left. I mean, she said they're polite, you know, but nonetheless, it's illegal and they want to clamp down on it. They suspect something's going on. I just can't imagine it. She came here as an international student, right? Presumably because she wanted to get a really good education to get a really good career, became converted. And now she's back in China doing gospel ministry. Don't you find that inspiring? 
but she's doing it in gentleness and deep prayerfulness and dependence upon God. See, at one level, the picture of Isaiah is the kingdom will come through might. There will be a time when the mighty king, the mighty king comes and rules from Zion and actually does pass judgment on the nations. But there is also this stream of teaching and picture which is saying, no, it will not be with sword or with might. It'll be in humility and gentleness and prayerfulness, depending on God to get the job done. And we see it in part in Hezekiah himself. What does he do? Does he try to fight back against the Syrian invasion? No, he prays. Do you know what happened after um, he prayed and Isaiah prayed? That night after they prayed, 180,000 soldiers from Assyria just mysteriously died. And then the king of Assyria fled or went home and his sons killed him because they wanted to be king. Through prayer. It says there, a bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, describes Egypt as a splinter of a reed. And what he means by calling Egypt a splinter of a reed is that it's incredibly weak. So he's saying to Hezekiah, don't run to them if you want help. You might be freaking out right now. Don't, don't try and go to Egypt because they're just a splinter of a reed, weak and fickle, and I will crush them. And saying here, no, that's not the way the servant's going to come and bring salvation. He won't, that servant won't come first and foremost crushing the nations. It'll be in this gentle, meek, humble way. And finally, how will the servant save? Well, in lockstep with the Lord. Look here in verses 5 through to 9. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open, to, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. This is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. What it's talking about here is that this is God's mission. That he will do in and through and alongside his people. And this is a mission that calls the people back from captivity, back from exile, back from anywhere they're enslaved and someone else's rule. I'm drawing you out into Jerusalem so that you can be a part of this vision for Zion to bless the world. I'm going to do this through my servant. It's my mission. And there's a big theme here in Isaiah. To not be intimidated by the idols and to see how vacuous it is to put your trust in other things. All the nations are putting their trust in their local gods. 
Whatever you're trusting in besides God, it will fail. It will not work. That's what Isaiah could come back to God. I am doing this. Is it money? Is it career? Is it success? Is it family? Whatever it is, don't put your hope in trusting those things because they will fold. They will crumble. Put your trust in the God who says things and then they happen. He said to Abraham, you'll be a great nation and you'll bless the whole earth. And it happened. He became a great nation and those who blessed him were blessed. Those who cursed him were cursed. He said before it happened that you'll be in Egypt 400 years and then I'll draw you out and bring you to myself. And it happened. He said that Assyria would invade and take you into captivity. He said that Babylon would invade and take the rest into captivity. And it happened. He's the God who speaks and things happen. Trust in him. It's his mission in us, through us. So what? Just a couple of reflections to end. So what? Well, the first thing, of course, is that yes, yes, this comes to its final fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the servant of Isaiah 42. Well, in the first instance, it would have been rightly understood as God's people. But who actually fulfills the brief? Jesus Christ. That's why it says in Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus is doing his, you know, Jesus stuff, it says that what he's doing there is to fulfill Isaiah 42. He comes in gentleness and meekness. That's the thing that seems to be pointing out there. He is this servant, this gentle servant in the power of the Spirit. But here's the so what. Here's the so what, which is really important to get. And it sounds blasphemous, but it's not. I'm just making a point. This was our mission before it was the Lord Jesus Christ's. What I mean is, it was always God's design, always God's design, that his people would participate in his mission to save the world. It was always there, right from the beginning, right through the Old Testament. And yes, Jesus is the one who actually makes it happen. But what does Jesus do at Pentecost? He gives us the Spirit. And he tells us to go take the gospel out. My friends, if you're not on mission as a Christian, if you don't get that you're part of the body of Christ, which is the servant, to call people out of darkness into the wonderful light of the sun, if you don't get that that's what is to capture your life, you're not just out of step with a couple of verses in the New Testament or Jesus Christ or Acts. You're out of step with the whole Bible. God calls us to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a light to the Gentiles. That is all those people out there in the world who haven't yet heard. This is our overarching priority in life, right? As God's people. Secondly, second quick reflection, reflection we'll end here, is that this clearly calls for a prayerful dependence on God, doesn't it? That's how this really works. A cause for a proactive prayerful dependence on God because we're not coming with fist or sword or with might or power. We're coming in the power of the Spirit to do God's work by the Spirit. And God is the one who opens hearts, softens hearts and emboldens us and gives us the words to speak 
And so we pray. We are gentle. People don't even know how dangerous we are. And that's the way it's meant to be by design. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for Isaiah, its clarity and its power. And God, please help us uh, to take on this mantle um, as your servant in Christ to bring light to the world. And I do pray that um, we would be motivated, moved by you to be a prayerful Christian group uh, and help us, Lord, um, to exercise that discipline and to just practice prayerfulness that we might be this um, gentle, faithful, persevering servant. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.